Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. I am a product manager, data scientist hybrid, and today I'm going to be walking you through what personalization actually means and how machine learning can be fed into products to make them better. So I work on the machine learning platform at Expedia, where I manage all of the machine learning capabilities, and particularly for Hotels.com. Um, and today's agenda, very briefly, I'm going to be walking you through what AI, ML, and deep learning is, but not in an academic definition, in a practical definition that should be true in 90% of the circumstances. I'm also going to be talking about what it actually means to be building product with machine learning in mind. And then I'm going to be touching on the degree of personalization and why not, like why more personalization does not mean a better product necessarily. And the last or second last point is on feedback loops and collective intelligence, which is uh, very necessary in machine learning for these data hungry products. Finally, just a few points on the rise of the AI product manager and what it means to be a product manager on machine learning in 2019. So let's get started. Um, when we think about traditional software engineering, it's basically someone providing, oh, giving some inputs, then a function, and then some outputs, right? It does here the addition, so zero plus two, and then it calculates that's two. But in machine learning, it's different because what happens in the middle is you don't actually want it necessarily to be adding it together, but you want it to learn the rules of the program itself. You want it to write what that set of rules should be. And this is how uh, machine learning actually works, by using statistics, more specifically correlational measures. So that's one way to think about it. Traditionally, you write the code, you, hard, uh, you make the program, and then it outputs what you want. Here, you just actually give it inputs and many outputs, and then it learns to identify the rules itself. Also, there's a lot of confusion around what AI, like what the difference between AI and machine learning is. So this is, again, a practical split. If you think about AI, it is really um, it's similar to physics, right? Um, and then machine learning here is similar to Newton's law. Uh, and by that, I mean it's a concept within kind of physics, right? Uh, it's machine learning is particularly engaged with how do we get machines to start off dumb and then iteratively become more intelligent using data and some uh, um, process from a human being to teach it what is right and what is wrong. And then deep learning is actually a subfield within machine learning, and that uh, is more around like artificial neural networks. I'm not going to be spending too much time on it, as it's more complex to be explaining. But in reality, if you understand machine learning, you should also be able to pick up what deep learning is. 
Right, so what does all of this mean in a product world? Well, I've tried to simplify it a bit. We want to be moving away from these average uh, experiences. You launch uh, an experiment, and then you find out B variant is better on average than control, right? Well, so we are optimizing our product for the average user, but in reality, there's no such thing as the average user. That user does not exist, right? So in machine learning, we are moving towards more sophistication of being able to either target or you know, personalize the content for them. And so the products will be able to adapt to users. The product will be able to predict what the user's needs are and then uh, creatively fulfill those uh, needs. And from a commercial point of view, if we can understand what the user's needs are, well, maybe we can then figure out when to show them these commercial products and also where on our product. And the bottom point is actually one of the most important ones to think about conceptually, because what we are doing with machine learning products is in reality uh, treating individuals at scale. We are taking the human level expert <clears throat> and serving it up for all of the people that use our product. So when I try to think about how I build products with machine learning in mind, this is usually the question that comes up. Will a specific set of users or will some users interact differently? Will they prefer this particular feature or product more than others? If you answer yes, then it is a feature that should be powered by machine learning. This is true most cases for customer-facing features. And Maybe another way to phrase it is to say, well, is there such a thing as one solution or one size fits all? If there isn't, then you need to be looking at machine learning in that particular feature. And if not, you can go ahead with heuristic rules, algorithmically or even rule-based. So the types of ML features, this is, I'm trying to capture here the two different approaches. You have these feature-level machine learning features. Uh, if you use Netflix or any product, um, you go to the website, and there's a feature, there's a section where that is powered by machine learning. But in reality, there's also a different type of machine learning, and that's called reinforcement learning. And reinforcement learning here, particularly the branch called multi-arm bandits or contextual bandits, is you're saying, well, given a non-machine learning feature, right, can I actually deliver it using machine learning to the right audience. Um, and that is just as powerful as a machine learning feature. And this is important to think about because I'll show you in a second how it looks like with an A-B test. So one way to think about all of this personalization is to see it as a spectrum um, of low personalization all the way to high personalization. Please do not take away the point that high is better and low is worse. That's not the intention at all. Non-personalized could be the top 50 on Spotify. Um, it has no impact who you are. It will show you the same result. Targeted could be uh, these uh, ad banners uh, out here on the street. I think Waterloo has them as well. Um, they, are, they are maybe targeted for the type of people that generally visit that neighborhood. Highly targeted is becoming more sophisticated. Uh, Copenhagen Airport 
where they have set up 16 monitors, and those monitors have cameras, and they will analyze who's in the proximity of that area, and depending on the gender, demographics, some other uh, variables, features, it will then display the right content to them. So that's still highly targeted, but not really personalized yet. And then you have semi-personalization, which is a really interesting concept, because it turns out that we as human beings um, do not always want very personalized results. As an example, this is an email I got from Manning.com, Manning Publishers. And uh, in that email, there's a set of recommendations for me. But within that set of recommendations, there's also the most popular results. They don't tell me that. But that's because as human beings, we don't necessarily want everything personalized to us. If you think about uh, visiting a restaurant, you might order um, the dish that the restaurant is most likely popular, uh, like that has made the restaurant popular. Or everyone saw a particular movie or documentary and then talks about it in that social network, which makes you want to see the same. So we also want to know what's trending as part of that personalization, and that's where semi-personalization kicks in. Um, and then you have kind of very custom-tailored solutions like the Discover Weekly Playlist. Now, this is an important concept. This concept is how we as product managers need to be thinking about uh, uh, linear or linearity or non-linearity thinking around uh, personalization. Most of, us, most of us tend to think the more personalization here, the better the user experience is, and the less, the worse it is. But in reality, there's actually a sweet spot where if you do more personalization beyond that, then actually that detracts from the user experience. And this is where the discussion comes in between product, design, and data science. Now, I was alluding to before the reinforcement learning capabilities and why they actually challenge conventional A-B testing. So in the top row, you can see here, let's say uh, a multi uh, sorry, um, an A-B test where you have four different variants. You split the traffic equally, 25% to each of them. And then at the end of that experiment, let's say 30 days, you'd find a winner. But in this case, the winner is variant C, and you have sent through 75% of your traffic to suboptimal variants, which could be a very costly solution. So what multi-arm bandits do is actually they update dynamically. So it may be that in day one, you send through equal split to the variants, but on day two, you learn what worked and what didn't work, and thereby you send more traffic to the well-performing variants. And what this means is your, experience, uh, your experiment can end after maybe two weeks because the better-performing variants actually get more traffic and then can reach statistical significance faster. So that's the power of multi-arm bandits. But actually, beyond just technical jargon and you know, state-of-the-art, it has certain empowerment for, for product managers. Because if you as a product manager can think big about the variance instead of just doing minor changes here and there, what it actually allows you is to try bold ideas. Because if your idea is very bad, the multi-arm bandit will discard it early on, right? So it actually empowers us as product managers to try crazy ideas. And if it, if, if it doesn't work on day one or day two, then we know for sure that we want to eliminate it instead of sending the same amount of traffic to that uh, suboptimal variant. 
so how does multi-arm bandits work? Um, very basically, it tries to balance between a trade-off that is, should I exploit what I know is the best variant, or should I explore other variants? If you think about it, um, I, I moved over five years ago to the UK from Denmark. I wanted to find restaurants nearby, so I would go out, try a restaurant here, and then maybe after five times, I'd find the best one and then keep on going to that for a couple of weeks, but then I want to explore, right? So it's very um, intuitive, and it tries to find the right balance between how often you should explore versus exploit. And you see it in many different areas, in fact. I'm not gonna touch too much on that, but just know that sometimes the best solution will require short-term sacrifice. And there are three different ways that um, uh, it works in a, in a kind of technical implementation. One of them is you set a fixed percentage for how often it should be exploring. Let's say 20% of the time, you should always explore. But that's very costly, right? You're, not, you're, you're applying a fixed amount of exploration. Whereas this section here, optimism in the face of uncertainty, which, which is actually the name of this approach, is where um, it tries these different uh, options and then if there is an option it doesn't really know how it performs, it will favor to try that to learn, to gain more knowledge. That's the optimism bit. And then there's also a third one, which is more computationally uh, expensive and is more contextual, so it understands where the, like the multi-arm bandit exists compared to the other options. But that's maybe more something that Trevor's going to talk about. Um, the... The, the two different approaches to multi-arm bandits in a business setting um, is the simplified multi-arm bandits where you take an action, and then based on that action, you either get a punishment or a reward. Uh, think of it as a kid that touches the stove. Um, when they burn the hand, they will be punished um, from the heat, and if they don't, then that's kind of a reward in itself. This approach actually helps you uh, train these reinforcement learning algorithms. But there's also a more sophisticated approach, which is actually aware of the context it is in. So in this example here, I list three different, um, uh, three different uh, types of contextual bandits. Oh, sorry, one type of contextual bandit, but with uh, two different states. So it could be that a variant is very well performing for people in Latin America, and they are visiting during the morning hours because if you are able to pick up the experimentation at that level, you're actually able to custom tailor your website to people in a way that works for most of them. And this is where contextual bandits is moving businesses, and we'll see in the next five to 10 years, a huge amount of investments in reinforcement learning. So another aspect of these recommender systems is they're extremely data hungry. And the way that it works is Someone, like a data scientist, will build a model based on some inputs, which is the data. Then it undergoes this process of modeling, and then it spits out, say, some coefficients. And then based on that, how users interact with it, you generate some insight what worked, what didn't work. And then you will fine-tune your model to actually make it better. So this feedback loop is what uh, most machine learning models are actually based on. It could be that you have a data scientist uh, who will, let's say, once a month update it in a batch fashion, or it could be in real time that it's updated depending on what the needs are. <laughs> but 
it's an important concept because as product managers, we have to understand that if we want to set a machine learning strategy, we cannot do that without talking about a data strategy. Uh, the, more the, uh, the more data we have, the cleaner the data is, the better these machine learning models will perform in production. So we also need to be thinking about uh, how can we actually acquire more data that will help power these machine learning models to make them more successful. And another concept is collective intelligence. Um, collective intelligence is the concept of one of you leaving a review online for, let's say, a product, and then other people benefiting from that to help them make a purchasing decision on that product. Now, what happens is when you start to impact a lot of other users, and those users also generate content, guest reviews, uh, blog posts, anything about your business that can actually influence the decision to purchase, uh, this is what's called collective intelligence. The intelligence of the crowd and the content they generate actually helps improve your, uh, your product. A final section, um, which I think is always important when we're talking about AI, is this rise of AI and what it means for product managers. Because by some of the modest estimations, um, they will displace up to 20% of the jobs within the next 20 years here in the UK. Um, but at the same time, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is the source for this uh, statistic, also say that they will uh, create a similar percentage of, of jobs. So what that means is we will need to take on a new skill set. Right? We will need to equip ourselves with an understanding of not just data science, but actually the prerequisites for that. Um, and this has to be something where we become more hybrids of data science or data analysis and product managers, or else we cannot actually make informed decisions about our product. And I've just put together uh, some points that I think are the most important. Even though every data scientist will curse at Excel, it's actually the tool they use uh, most frequently. Um, get comfortable with Excel. Find out how to do formulas. Find out uh, how to make pivot tables, some charts, some basic visualization. It's going to go a long way, uh, even when you're presenting. Statistics, I cannot stress this enough. I hated it all of my life. I ran away from it in college. But then I returned to it as a minority. Uh, so I'm from Syria. I know a lot of statistics about minorities, and I wanted to disprove them. So I studied statistics to be able to disprove them. So get interested about statistics, because they are extremely powerful. Um, and also, they uh, feed into machine learning. You cannot do machine learning if you don't understand statistics. Um, and that also takes me to the inferential statistics. Learn about hypothesis testing or statistical inference, right? All of these concepts are extremely important, and it's really worth your time and effort to just understand them. Math, don't skip math, learn about algebra. Use Khan Academy. I have never met a more uh, dedicated teacher than on khanacademy.com or .org. Um, and also get started with some basic programming. Uh, you don't have to go beyond the basic syntax to be start doing some interesting machine learning projects. SQL is becoming very important. You cannot look at uh, job descriptions from some of the top tech companies without them mentioning 
uh, it'd be a nice to have for you to be able to you know, use uh, MySQL or query Hive tables because that helps you as a product manager to validate your hypothesis. Say you have a hypothesis about certain users. Um, you cannot wait for analytics to gather all of that data. You're sitting in a meeting room. It's just stuck in your, fa uh, in your head. And then you open the browser, you analyze, and then you can actually validate it here and then. Um, and then gradually you start to move towards these areas. Don't do this first. Don't do deep learning first. Honestly, it is a big mistake because you won't appreciate why big where deep learning can be used. Um, and you'll use it as a hammer to solve every problem, big or small. Um, so start off with machine learning and then gradually move on to deep learning. There are so many uh, uh, great courses out there you can take for free. In summary, just wrapping up here, we spoke about the difference between AI and ML and deep learning. We spoke about what it means to build products with machine learning in mind. We spoke about the different degrees of personalization and that more sophistication is not actually better. We then spoke about feedback loops. We spoke about collective intelligence. And then we wrapped up on a more serious note around AI product management and uh, some of the jobs that were going to be displaced. And this is why we need to be upskilling on that front. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.